Hello and welcome to the Dylan Tons Podcast. What is it about Bob Dylan? I'm here with Court Carney, who is a professor of history at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas, where he teaches cultural history, black history, and modern American history. He's an author of Cutting Up, How Early Jazz Got America's Ear, and is currently finishing a manuscript on the public memory and image of Nathan Bedford Forrest, who I have to say is not one of my personal heroes. He is also <laughs> currently part of a teaching research group centered on Woody Guthrie and is co-editor with our first podcast guest, Aaron Callahan, on a collection of essays centered on Bob Dylan's use of set list. And so we will definitely be talking about that. Welcome, Court. Hi, nice to have you. Nice, nice for you to have me. <laughs> hey, everyone's got what everyone, right? I was, uh, I was hoping that you would uh, tell me why you don't like Nathan Bedford Forrest, but we can get into that later. If, if people don't know who he is, uh, they should Google him and then understand yeah. what our comments are about. He was a leader. We'll get to that. Anyway, go on, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I love leaders, but not those kind. Um, tell me, what is it about Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan, I, oof, there's so many pithy ways we could uh, respond, or there's so many uh, deep, kind of heavy ways, but uh, I just, I think at the end of the day, I just find him fascinating. Like, uh, I find him more fascinating now than when I first got into him. I find him endlessly fun to talk about in various ways and uh, with colleagues and, and, and the such. And I think he's just someone that we can really, uh, whatever vector you're riding, it will hit at some point with Dylan. And it, it, it can be explosive and interesting and entertaining and, and strange. And I think that that keeps you coming back for more. That's, that's kind of the way I look at it. Okay. And what, why, why do you find him more fascinating now than in the past? I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, there's so few people like him in the world. Uh, there's so few people who are putting out the product he is, he is, he is creating, this, this outburst he's had at this stage of his life uh, on this level, uh, lyrically. But then also, you know, you kind of, uh, and I think both of us, you and I are probably in a similar place where you're kind of, maybe freed from some of the constraints of earlier academic times. And you're kind of like, well, let's play with it. What can we say about them? What, is there something new to be said? Um, and I tend to think there is because, you know, we're thinking of him in different ways. Yeah. And he's still producing, right? So there's that he, as well. He's still out there. Yeah. He's still out there playing. I mean, I've seen him. You've seen him recently. I've seen him recently. He's still out there. He still has a band. He's still, he's still doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, and, and I, I like the idea of uh, you know, you can you can play with Dylan, right? Um, it keeps going, and it, it, there's always more material, but you know, you don't have to take it too too seriously, but you can take it very seriously. One, and and you can combine those two things. I think a lot of the better Dylan scholarship does exactly that. I so, think I think for a long time, I think for a long time, we took him too seriously, or or certain certain elements of the Dylan world tend to take him very seriously and i think that from my perspective first of all he doesn't seem to take himself that seriously which is i think an important tension to keep in mind uh at the same point it's not really fun to be humorless about him i think i, I think a humor a certain humorlessness 
defines a lot of scholarship with him. And I, I think that sort of, I mean, I'm not saying it's not important scholarship, but it can certainly answer and dig into some important places. So I'm not being dismissive of it, but I think if you're saying only that, I think that misses a little bit of the mark of, of what he represents. Yeah, I agree. So you're co-editing this book with Aaron Callahan. Why don't you tell me a little bit about it? Oh, uh, we hit, hit on a couple of panels to go, not even panels, a conference and then a panel. And she gave a paper uh, at a conference that I was kind of struck by it. I thought it was an interesting idea. And then in the, as we were chatting about it, it sort of hit on both of us that this would be an interesting way of kind of looking at Dylan's performance. Um, so we started kind of uh, going back and forth on this idea of how he uses set lists, what a set list represents, what is a set list, uh, which is a fairly, and this is what we can, we can get into. I think it's a fairly modern idea. The idea, I mean, you have classical music has, you know, programs and that kind of thing, but the idea of a set list is, is, is curious to me because it's not at all from the folk world. Folk music wouldn't have necessarily had that. Um, and I think it has a very kind of interesting element to it that we can grab onto historically. Uh, but anyway, so we started talking about it and uh, thought we could maybe do something with this. And uh, it, kind of, it kind of went from there. And I think that, um, you know, it's a way of, one of my things that I'm into really right now is kind of this multidisciplinary, non-disciplinary, anti-disciplinary world where the historian and, the, and the, the literary critic and the literature professor and the sociologist and whatever can come together and say something interesting uh, about each other's stuff. And I think that helps too. Erin uh, has a history background, but she's also, uh, you know, teaches literature and then I come from a history background and we ask different questions and that's really apparent in the way we approach things, which I think is really cool. You know, uh, you and I and Aaron and um, uh, another colleague of ours, Sarah Martinez, we were on a panel and it was so fascinating to see how differently we approach the music. There is, I think that's kind of the goal of seeing how, what questions she asks, what questions you would ask, what questions I ask of the music are all very different. And I think that's valuable and I think that's cool. Yeah, and, and Dylan, you know, as, as you suggest, really lends himself to that idea. So, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have deep, deep reads. You could go real deep with lyrics. You could go real deep in terms of what is he doing lyrically. And then, from my perspective, I'm kind of more interested in, like, well, how do we situate this? How do we contextualize this historically? How, how can we kind of view him through the lens of, of history? And then you could also look at it from a performance angle of just what is he actually doing on stage? How is he producing this? How is he doing it? And I think those are all valid, cool things. Very few people are able to combine all of those and very few people necessarily want to combine all of those. And I think that it's really kind of cool to kind of see all these different threads of, of conversation come together in something that is maybe, you know, larger than itself. Yeah, which raises another question. I mean, do you think other artists, you, you know, you said not everyone can combine all those things, but do you think other artists take their set lists and, and maybe maybe use that word again in, in an artistic direction, right? Because Dylan's set lists, there's an art to them, it seems to me. They can be interpreted. 
I, I think there's a challenge there. And I think there's a couple things that go into this. One is there are certain artists that are very set list aware, you could say. If you go back historically, obviously, you have something like the Great Dead and how their set list became a primary part of their, their story. Um, you could also look at it in the sense that through technology, we know what the set lists are at any given time pretty immediately. You know, with, with uh, different websites, you can get the set list, you know, minutes, if not a few hours after the concert. Well, that wouldn't have been the case if you were seeing a show in the 80s or whatever. If you were in the, if you were in the tape circle, yeah, you might know, but that still wouldn't be a deal. But you can see a show last night. and I mean, you can hear about a show last night and then go to your show tomorrow and you have a pretty good expectation of what's going to happen. Now, that takes a lot of the mystery out of it and some people don't like that and some people find that stultifying. On the other hand, you know, as for an artist, I, I, I'm not a touring musician, but that's got to be kind of tough too because you're playing your show that you want to curate for a group of people. I think curate's a, a good word here. You're curating your show to a group of people that you did not see last night. And now, now they're sort of like, well, how come we're getting the same show? You see this a lot with sort of bands that have long sort of chronologies. If you look at a band like Wilco, if you look at a band like The National, if you look at anything like that, you have a group of people who are always sort of perpetually underwhelmed because they are so over connected to what's going on if that makes sense um dylan fascinating story right and, and you know this more than most other people if you go back his 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 set lists were very fluid uh and there are there are giant swaths of his past where the set list was kind of changing um but yet it's bookended by his early tours which really were static and his new tour which with a couple of exceptions is pretty static but that doesn't mean that those performances are the same. And I think that one thing, especially with Dylan, is that if you look at a set list, you go, well, it's the same set list as last night. I guarantee you it's, it's not the same performance. And I think within that is where you have all these different pieces. Um, so I haven't really structurally set up exactly this sort of this idea. I'm in the process of it. But I think there's something really fascinating about the, the musician and the audience, right? The, the artist and the audience. But then you have technology on top of that, which kind of makes it harder. But then you have some people who have stage shows and they have to have it all set up. Like Paul McCartney, I believe you saw Paul McCartney recently, you were going to. Paul McCartney's whole stage show is so intricate, he can't be going on the fly. So it's a very different thing. Dylan's stage show is non-existent, but he's choosing this kind of collection of songs. So I think, I think uh, to, to not answer your question in a broad way, I think it's it's dependent on all these different variables, and within that, I think you can have some good conversations. Yeah, I, I actually just saw Paul McCartney in uh, Baltimore in Camden Yards um, just a few days ago, and uh, you're right. I mean, it was a massive set list, like 37 songs or something ridiculous. Went on for three hours. Was heavily, heavily choreographed. I would say, you know, there was he was really right. good at mimicking spontaneity. But you knew damn right why right. virtually the same thing everywhere he was. Um, incredibly spry for an 80-year-old man. I mean, really. I mean, I, I couldn't do some of the things he could do in terms of moving around. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was, uh, and he, but he played the songs. And this is a contrast to Dylan. Um, he played the songs in loving, um, 
reconstruction right down to the solo notes. So guitar solos sounded exactly mm. the same way. They were perfectly mimicked the album recordings, um, except for one. He played something, which of course he didn't write. And as a tribute to George Harrison, he started out playing the ukulele and strumming it in a traditional mm -hmm. way to play something. And then immediately the whole band kicked in and it sounded exactly like it did on Abbey Road. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, what's the expectation? The expectation for an audience of Paul McCartney is to see these Beatles and Wing songs. Now, and, and Paul plays directly into that. Mm -hmm. Dylan plays directly against that. Yeah. And then you have the Stones, who I saw the Stones last year, and the Stones are kind of in the middle where they are sort of, there's some spontaneity in there, you can tell. There's some set less, you know, set list uh, asterisks where they have time to do something different, but it's still very, very much of like what you were saying, kind of a, um, this is spont spontaneous, but it's planned spontaneity within a very rigid sort of <laughs> window. <laughs> So I think there's something interesting you do with all three of those artists, though. All, I mean, those artists are all doing something very different on stage with very different impacts, with very different connections to the audience. And I don't think there's a right or wrong way, but I could see very easily being very frustrated if you went to Bob Dylan. You had no idea what Bob Dylan had been doing the last 25 years. Hence all the people who walk out in the middle of the show. So Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because one of the people I was with at the McCartney show said flat out, he wants it reconstructed note for note. He wants it to be identical mm -hmm. to the album. Mm -hmm. My attitude's always been, well, I already own the album. Well, and, and a good point too, a good point too is that I like McCartney three, but he's not giving you 93% of McCartney three. He's throwing one song out there. Mm -hmm. Dylan's touring the whole, the whole record. He puts out a new record. He's touring every song except one. I mean, I, I just, I don't know another artist uh, uh, that we could talk about that's similar. Not with that age. No, no, it's, it's extraordinary. So let's, let's change it up a little bit. Um, you, you've been doing a lot with, or you've been talking a lot about it. Um, generational approaches to Dylan. Um, you know, how, how does that reception of Dylan break down across generations? I asked Aaron the same question. I'm just curious what you have to say about it. I think this is fascinating, and I think uh, I'll try to be long-winded here because uh, I can kind of drift, but I think the way people see Dylan, who grew up with Dylan, or were there with Dylan, have a very different take on him than people who came later, and I think that's normal, and I think that's fine, but on top of that, there's there's been placed a certain, you know, um, uh, status or a certain sort of uh, this is the way it has to be seen, a certain hierarchy where if you were there, you got it in a way that's different but better than. Now, now I'm, being, I'm speaking generally here. Um, on the other hand, there are people who come after all this who are reconstructing all of this stuff. So for example, the one story I thought of when you, you asked me to, to, to talk was um, I first got into Bob Dylan through a single record that my dad gave me in fourth grade and that was Nashville Skyline so my entry point to Dylan is the record that was such a left turn for so many folks who were following along from the beginning but what that provides is you don't know what Dylan's doing right I mean, I mean you, you come in with like well Dylan's this and that and that whereas if you're going along with the trajectory you're kind of 
you're kind of like, well, I don't know if I want that, or I do like that, or that's not folk, or that's not rock, or that's not this. And I think that if you come later, I'm not saying it's better than, but it is a very distinct, different way of looking at it. So when I was young, Nashville Skyline was just a Bob Dylan record, just like Abbey Road was a Beatle record. I, it, it took time to kind of grow into understandable Abbey Road was the end of the story, that, that Nashville was the, well, the beginning of a middle story. Um, you know, I was also, I got Biograph as a, young, as a young person too. So Biograph kind of, we don't talk about Biograph enough, I think. That's a really interesting collection. Um, but that was sort of like, wow, this is all these things. All I'm trying to say is I think people who did not grow up with, through Dylan or with Dylan are probably less boundary defined than people who kind of said, well, I like this at 15. I don't like this at 30 or whatever it is. I'm being more critical of this. But I think if you look at the criticism, you can see these different pieces play out. Whereas if you come from a, a position where, you know, in the 80s or 90s, you have all of this to kind of pick and choose from. Again, I, I don't think there's a hierarchy here, but I think that within the criticism, there has been a hierarchy placed on it, which is you have to be there to understand this. Um, and I get it. I totally get it. But generationally, I think we're at a place where we have so many more voices saying so many different things that have been said before that I think are valuable. Not all of it, obviously, but nothing's going to be 100%. Um, and I'm not suggesting anything I'm saying is earth shattering either. But I will say that, that um, it gives you a different kind of perspective on what he's doing. Perhaps more open, right? Like if you knew the gospel stuff was coming, then you're going to be maybe a little bit more taken by it one way or another than someone who was like, oh, I don't like this at all. Of course, there's exceptions. There's people who went along and were appreciative of everything he did. But we know looking at the reviews and looking at the, the stuff that that's not necessarily true. So generationally, I think there's something really fascinating that we could talk about, uh, not even to mention the fact that you have different voices, different people talking about Dylan that would have been the case 30 or 40 years ago. Um, I think that's all really, really, really cool. But I think ultimately just how you view Dylan is going to be affected by the way that your generation is kind of conceptualizing him. I think Biograph is interesting here. I also think the idea of the Gen X Dylan fan is interesting here because like with everything else and it's in the DNA of the Gen X people, we get kind of glossed over. <laughs> I think that's just part of the Gen X experience. But I think there's something really interesting to be said there where you're coming after the fact, but you're also in the middle. Like Dylan's still producing. So, so you come into it in, let's say, the 80s. You, you, you become aware of Dylan in like 19, let's say, just pick a date, in 1984. Well, then you still have decades and decades of Dylan that you are aware of going forward. Um, so I wasn't aware of Dylan in the 80s so much, but I became very much aware, of course, Dylan in the 90s. I was old enough then to be contemporary of the music coming out. But then you have younger generations of people who, uh, you know, are just now getting into it. And so they're only knowing maybe the last 10 years of music. Like I said, we could go on forever on these different pieces but i think there's something there to that there's something there in terms of your own personal perspective and then of course if you're a academic or you're a scholar or you're looking at it from a different viewpoint you then of course have that other apparatus to add on to yeah it's an interesting point i mean that, that idea of where you come into it i mean i had been into dylan since i was a you know pretty young teen i wasn't you know particularly immersed but uh you know i'd heard him on the radio um and listened to some albums but um you know, way back in the late seventies, you know, and by the time the nineties rolled around, you know, when he came out with time out of mind, I thought, 
really another Dylan album? <laughs> you know, because it seemed like yeah, it, yeah. Uh, there's been such a scarcity, you know, like, you know, is he really going to have an original material? My God, you know, he hadn't done that in, in so long. And the last one was what? Under the Red Sky, um, which was a, right. a, a, an also ran at best. And, uh, you know, and then he came out time out of mind. And I really actually had, a, and I've heard other people say the same thing. I had a little trouble getting into it because I didn't mm. trust, you know, I, I kind of mm. lost mm -hmm. my faith mm -hmm. in Dylan. Um, and then as I listened to it more, I got more and more into it. And I realized, oh my God, this is, this is, and now I, I recognize it as a masterpiece. Um, but it took me a while um, to really do that. And I think part of that experience, the, the contemporary, of, you know, being contemporary with Dylan, which we are, it's funny to say that, but we are, um, being contemporary with him, seeing him put material out, even as we speak, um, really affects how we, how we view it because we, we come into it with all that baggage and it makes you understand, you know, how, um, he was received when he, when he, you know, during his, um, his gospel period, right. Um, you know, how critics responded and, and, and so much of the criticism was really based on the critics expectations, not so much the right. villain, um, or, or 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's true throughout. Um, so now it's really interesting to see Gen Zers coming in now, right. Seeing Dylan's laid output as old. Right. That's that's kind of cool. <laughs> right. That's kind of right. Cool. And this whole this whole thing where like the, the conversation in the 90s was like, how is this whatever he was with like 59, 60 year old man? <laughs> yeah. How is he still doing it? The Rolling Stones with, uh, um, you know, when, when the Steel Wheels tour and they're like, how is this possible? These eight, you know, I think I'm older than the Wilburys now. I think, the, right. I think I'm older than the Wilburys were, except oh. for, you know, uh, uh, Roy, but it's like <laughs> these 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 uh, throwbacks, you know, and that was all part of that sort of boomer sort of celebration, but also like um, in the late 80s and 90s, that was a big part of the conversation of like, you know, and of course Dylan had that health scare during that period, but mm -hmm. I think there's an idea of like, well, these are both our contemporaries and like, you know, youth culture, screw you, we're, we're still here, take that. Yeah. Um, I think between like 1986 and 1996, or how many of those kind of reunion tours, and, you know, all those different bands that got together with some part of the their original bunch. I think it all plays into this. And I think the whole the whole dialogue was, wow, you know, this ancient person who's 56 years old is still still doing it. We look back on that, and it's hilarious. But especially when he's putting out music, at, you know, in his late 70s or producing music in his late 70s and early 80s. But at the time, I think that really, going back to your point, I think it really did, it really did sort of frame the way younger people would have seen that music. Is this any good? Is this going to be, and, it, and it's silly on one level, because if you're looking at like a Duke Ellington or a Frank Sinatra or a, a Nina Simone, you know, you're looking at them at, at a particular age when they're actually flourishing. But the rock scene and the, and the pop scene, of course, doesn't really have that. The, the ageism built into that uh, makes for a different um, expectation, which is, again, what you were saying earlier, you know, the expectation from the gatekeepers, the expectation by the critics, that all was sort of the defining element for it rather than just the music. You couldn't just hear the music. You had to listen to all this stuff first, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in terms of those other artists that you named, you know, there's a unlike rock music um rock rock is always about what's new right the newest trend right 
Um, even when what's new is so obviously derivative of what came before. Um, but it is, there is, it's fascinating. I was, I, I went to the McCartney concert with a 13 year old who's really into the Beatles and there were young kids there and they were really, there were a couple kids sitting in front of me. One was probably about 12 or 13 and his sister was there. She was about eight. She wasn't quite as into it as he was. He was going crazy. In fact, his parents had to keep mm. pulling him back into his seat. So, you know, cause he kept trying to stand up and, you know, he was so in it. And then there were a bunch of kids who we were probably about 14, 15, and they were just going bonkers. They knew the music, especially mm. the older music. And the older it was, the more into it they were, if you can imagine such a thing. Well, you know, I think every, you know, I was just at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and, and the same thing came up. Are you a Stones fan or a Beatles fan? You, know, you never get tired of that. But I think the Beatles in particular, regardless of where you stand with them, the Beatles, for whatever reason, real imagine, they are a band that continues to have a new generations find them. You know, every generation is going to have their entry point with the Beatles. And that still seems to be true. I mean, I, I think what you're saying is true, that young people still are going to look at Paul McCartney. If you look at TikTok, if you look at any of the stuff going on social media, the Beatles still have this weird hold on, on young people who are discovering their version of John Lennon or their version of whatever. And I think there's something about that music that kind of transcends in a way that very few other artists do. And I, I think even more so than Dylan. However, I think that um, when you put Dylan into this, I think you still have this interesting conversation as to uh, how are people viewing him? Like, I, I, it's interesting to see if someone was 15 or 16 years old today and the first thing they heard was rough, uh, rough and rowdy ways. I don't know how that would, what, what, what's gonna, the next few years going to look like? Um, I, I, I don't know. What if your first entry point were the Sinatra songs? Um, I think that's really fascinating. What if, and I, and this is a record I love, what if your first introduction to Dylan was the Christmas record? I mean, that'd be a wonderful way to kind of, okay, now what, what's next? Uh, all, all, all uh, everything is up for grabs. You know, I think that's kind of fun to look at too. Yeah. I would imagine that, 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 that is the case for a lot of people They're you know, their, their parents put on the mm -hmm. Christmas album or lark during Christmas. And that's the first time you hear Dylan. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure we can find people who fit that profile perfectly. So I so, love it. I, I want to talk to them. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. They should, they should reach out to me. We can, we can interview them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're always looking for content. So how do you, how do you reconcile? And I, again, I asked Aaron this question. It's just something that fascinates me. How do you reconcile your, your scholarship, your Dylan scholar, you, you're, 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 you're editing a book on Dylan, you give conference papers, you publish on Dylan, and you also are a Dylan fan. You go to the concerts, right? Um, maybe you hold up your lighter or your phone, um, whatever. How do you reconcile <laughs> that? I think there's two ways of looking at this question. One is, in my past, the way I got into Dylan studies was actually through two different people. One was Johnny Cash. I kind of did a paper on Johnny Cash and kind of was looking at some stuff that hinged on Dylan. And then more recently, much more recently, you know, playing with Woody Guthrie the way I have, Woody Guthrie and Dylan. So I think most of my early connections with Dylan scholar in a scholarship vein were actually through Cash and, and, and Woody, which I think is kind of an interesting conversation to have too. But to the other point, which is, how then do you make sense of Dylan um, uh, as a fan and Dylan as a subject? 
I think I try very hard to, to accept what Dylan's giving on face value and with openness. In other words, I don't go thinking I'm going to see something he did in 1965. I don't go thinking, oh, this is going to – I go openly, and that's where I have enough knowledge to know that he's going to give you what he's going to give you. And, and I think that if you're open to that, if you, whatever, whatever mystic chord you want to pluck and say, well, I'm going to vibe on whatever vibe he's giving, then that's, I think, where you can have a lot of enjoyment. And then as soon as it's over, you start going, well, that's interesting. What, what can we make of that? Why in 2022 or 2021 is he doing this? And I think those things are, are, are both kind of uh, equally colliding where you can go, okay, this was, this is what he's doing. And you can sit there and go, wow, this is Dylan alive in the same space. And then, you know, when you're waiting nine hours to get out of the parking lot at the majestic theater in San Antonio, you then go, okay, now what does this mean? And I, and I think, you know, I saw Dylan, uh, this last go around in San Antonio with my dad. My dad had seen him before. He loves Dylan, but he doesn't know Dylan's stuff after, say, 75, right? And he enjoyed it. Like, I didn't know how he would take it, but he thoroughly enjoyed it. He just said, man, it's, it's I mean, D- Dylan's a couple years older than he is. He's like, wow, I can't imagine doing what he's doing every night or every third night or every second night. Um, and I think, but, but I think that this point is, I can, I can look at it through an academic lens that I think is interesting and important, at least within my realm. But I can also, I wouldn't say detach, but I could also allow space for, I enjoy seeing his concerts. I enjoy seeing what he's doing. I enjoy being in an audience of someone who I respect and admire and seeing what they're going to do with it. I'm not going to think he's going to play Mr. Tambourine Man. But I'm going to go thinking, okay, what, 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 what is this? The other part of this, and this is just where I kind of come in, and maybe this is true for you. It's true for a lot of people in academics, but maybe not for all. But, you know, as a historian, history kind of infuses the way I view the world. It's not something that at 5 o'clock you put down. And I'm sure the same thing is true for you and the way you look at the world, that, you know, you're kind of in, you're in it. And at any given time, your, your kind of history, you know, senses are going to buzz <laughs> at whatever point. And I think that that, um, that lack of boundaries in terms of how you view the world sounds very unhealthy. It might be, but it's also, I've made peace of it over the last 48 years. So I guess it is what it is. So an unfair question is a follow-up, um, you know, Seeing, you know, and it's a false dichotomy, I get it. Um, but if you had to choose between being a fan or being a scholar, which would you choose? Being a fan of Dylan and being a scholar of Dylan? Yep. I'd probably be a fan of Dylan. I think there's so many people who are doing cool things that I don't need my voice. I can, I can leave my voice out of it. Uh, I do like thinking about Dylan. I do like writing about Dylan. I think it's fun. Um, but, you know, I also really enjoy just, just the music. There are times when I listen to Dylan more than other times. I'm sure there are people who only listen to Bob Dylan. I, I, I have a friend of mine who basically only listens to Guided by Voices. Like, that's all he listens to. Or at least he did, you know, back in the day. That's fascinating to me. Like, Guided by Voices? But wow. You know, that's a really fascinating take to say, well, this is basically what I'm going to listen to. I don't listen to Dylan all the time, every day. 
but there are moments when I really fall into the hole where I'm like, we'll listen to, you know, whatever, you know, there are times when like planet waves, you won't listen to for a while. Then all of a sudden planet waves is the only thing I listen to. Um, that happens quite a bit. Uh, I hadn't listened to uh, desire for a long time. And I went back and there's a lot of stuff on there that I was like, wow, this really sounds like a million dollars. Um, you know, so I, I think that as a fan, I'm sort of, you know, it, it, sometimes it's very Dylan centered and sometimes it's not right now. It's kind of both. I'm listening to a lot of Dylan, but I'm also sort of writing a little bit on Dylan. Hmm. So to ease out of your question, I'm going to say that I'll, I'll, I'll choose fan to make, to make you feel, to f- make you feel uh, like you've successfully trapped me, but uh, then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put enough ellipses after it to make it seem like there's, it's open. Well, that that's very diplomatic of you. <laughs> so, on that on that subject what what else do you listen to what other what other type of music do you listen to i so i uh, i mentioned wilco i listen to wilco a lot i like their i like their i like what they're doing with music right now i like their kind of take on stuff um i listen to a lot of jazz uh that's come and gone come come and comes and goes too lately i've been listening to a lot of sort of different sort of uh recent sort of jazz kind of exploratory things like who at the beginning of the uh there's a there's a guy named um uh what's his name sam gindel or sam grindel sam gindel young young saxophone player very interesting sort of sort of hip-hoppy vibe at times um the best record i've heard jazz record i've heard in the last couple of years is isaiah collier who does a record um uh, cosmic transmissions and and it came out i think last year and isaiah collier i don't know much about him but he is such in the vein of the best of what you would imagine coltrane without being so much of a throwback i love 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 that record a lot um and then you know i've been listening a lot lately to alice coltrane because her records are always sort of inventive and interesting um I try to, when I write, when I'm literally kind of in the drafting, like I'm actually putting words together, I, 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 I like sound and noise, but it's got to be a very particular type of sound and noise. And, you know, jazz really fits the bill there too. Uh, ambient music, obviously. Um, <clears throat> uh, stuff like that, that I, you can, I, I can't be, I can't be in a, in a, in a, in a quiet, quiet, quiet place, but you can't be anything that is so that can take you away. Anything with lyrics, obviously, is kind of tough. Um, but at the beginning of the year, I made a point uh, to listen more to more music more intently, and that was sort of my goal, whatever resolution or whatever it is. And I, I every month now I collect a little kind of running tally of what I've been listening to um, with some intention some intentionality. So I'm going to sit and spend time and listen to this 45 minute record or whatever. Most of it has been stuff I hadn't been, hadn't listened to before. It's either brand new music or music I've gone back to. Um, and some of this stuff has been really surprising. Like I'm not, I don't count myself as a big Santana aficionado, but I went back to his, what I guess I would call his late early period of Santana records. And I was like, well, these are the best sounding things I've ever heard when he's right beginning to get mystical I'm like, well, this is amazing. Um, and so there's been fun surprises of kind of going back. I, I think it's hard, and we all face this, it's hard to kind of maintain your kind of 
you used this word earlier, spontaneity of music or this engagement with music, or do I even care about music anymore? There's so much of it. But I found this has been a fun little party trick to kind of get me to focus a little bit more. So um, there are bands I followed for a long time. I followed Wilco for since they were, you know, around and I followed other stuff like that. But then there's also the, the I just at the end of the day love hearing stuff that that moves me, that is either emotionally resonant or is something that really sparks uh, a mood or a, a, a vibe. And I, I think that as long as I feel that that radar is still calibrated, I feel connected to whatever it is, whether it's jazz or whether it's, uh, you know, whatever rock or whatever genre. I think we live, I think going back to the, your earlier question, I think we live in a time where, where younger people have no concept of genre and you can't imagine going into a music. We well, can't imagine going to a music store at all. You can't imagine going to a music store and going, well, where's the pop rock divide? Where is the, R&Bs, you know, that doesn't make sense to anybody under the age of probably, I don't know, 30, 35, maybe. And I think that that I, Gen X, kind of where I'm coming from, is still genre-y a bit, but I think it's really fascinating and, and, and kind of re refreshing to kind of be just open and go, well, I'm interested in music. I like this. I'm always interested in what, new, what people are listening to. I find that great. And any interview I ever read, I'm like, well, we're in the five records you're listening to. I mean, I just make that stuff up. Because I want to know. I want to be. I want to be engaged. I want to have some sort of electricity. You know, you had that electricity of listening to that first record when you were a teenager or whatever. It's like, well, music is my thing. It's not going to be sports. I can tell you that much. So, music is my thing. And then at thirty-five, you end up saying, well, you know, maybe this is too tiring. <laughs> but you fight through that. And I, I, I make playlists for myself all the time. Um, you know, I, I like to just kind of surprise myself with with stuff. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily look at this all for, through an academic lens, of course, but I do think like this is stuff that, that sustains me. Um, and at this point right now, at least for the last six months, I'm, I'm trying to track that in a way that kind of surprises me. So how, how does, how does jazz relate to Bob Dylan? How does jazz relate to Bob Dylan? How does jazz relate to Nathan Bedford Forrest? How does I mean this is the the bifurcation of my academic career, which is uh, set to uh, be disappointing to everybody on every level. But at any rate, I think that there are concrete ways you can look at jazz, Dylan. Obviously, the way he is improvisational, the way he is mercurial, the way he is sort of. Uh, playing into that role, romanticized or not, of what a jazz band does, you know, gender specific, the idea of, a, of the, the guy going out and playing on the road. I think he's adopted that. Um, I think that there is a sense of being, you know, we don't talk, uh, I don't talk this much about it, but I think there's something interesting there about the traditionalist in Dylan. Dylan as a traditionalist, Dylan as, as someone who cares very much as a, of a, a repertoire means, which I think is a different way of looking at set lists, but I think there's something interesting there. Uh, when, when he starts rattling off all these records that are important to them, I think that's the, I think that's an, in, there's an interesting element of what the past does to Dylan uh, as someone like Duke Ellington or something, or, <clears throat> or Mingus, or someone that was expanding, the, Miles Davis, expanding the form while also being very much rooted in it. Um, Miles Davis, of course, snaps that 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 narrative a bit. So does Dylan. 
but I, I still feel like they had a, a sense of the largeness of their own past. I think that Dylan understands whether he's going to give that to you or not, but he understands kind of where he, he's coming from. And that, that, that I think he's connected to the past in a way that might elude uh, certain people, but I think he certainly sees himself as part of this. And I think that jazz musically and structurally, but also jazz as mysticism, jazz as career path, I think it's all part of the way he kind of values his position in it and also how he situates himself in it. It's funny, as you're talking, I, I recall that there's a reference in uh, Chronicles. He's talking about being in the village and hanging out with Cecil Taylor, and he makes some comment about Cecil Taylor can play straight when he wants to, <laughs> um, you know, referring yeah. to Cecil Taylor's piano playing. And for those who don't know who Cecil Taylor is, I strongly recommend you look him up. But I will say another thing he has in common with Cecil Taylor is um, I've been to a number of Cecil Taylor concerts. Uh, he's, he's, he's passed now. And uh, they had one thing in common with Dylan, and that is people walked out on them. Right, right. You know, uh, very controversial, right? Like you look back on it, it seems it seems like why would this be something? But, but I think there's something to that. Like if you bring in Ornette Coleman or whomever is in that sort of realm, I think that it, obviously Dylan Dylan is touching that same sort of fiber that that these other people were, um, and and also I mean it sounds like a cliche, but the idea of of you doing what you want to do um not wanting to repeat the past but still being aware of the past i mean coltrane didn't live long enough to see this but but you see like what he was doing from like 64 to 65 to 66 you know it'd been really fascinating to see what he would have done in 70 and 72 right and i think dylan has had the longevity where you can kind of see where he's going away and then coming back and going away and coming um, and maybe not so large a step as, say, you know, what's going on with other jazz musicians, but being able to say, this is what I'm doing, and you can either accept it or don't, I don't really have an interest in debating you. I think that's very much in the jazz world. Yeah, that's an interesting commentary. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it that way, the, uh, the longevity of Dylan. Um, and and I ha it's funny, I have actually thought often about, I wonder what Coltrane would have done if he had live to be 60 say right because and there, there are some people who die young and, and that's sad and tragic but you don't you don't necessarily think that that music would have transcended anything else it would have been something different but there are other people who are like what in the world would have come out of this um i know there's too many people who think of this way but like what would have john lennon been like in the in the 1990s what would he you know what I can't imagine, as someone who was always open to new sounds and always open to new things, what would he have done? How would he have traversed the 80s that was such a pitfall for so many other of his peers? Um, obviously, you know, Coltrane's a, a good example there, but it's, it's like, you know, what, for the musicians that were open and tuned in, who then died tragically young, who you knew would have had another few decades of music, um, you know, how do we how do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of someone who is constantly open and creatively engaged and then struck down early? Mm. Um, and then Bob, of course, what if, what if he had gone away in 1981? I know you do a lot of 
work with 81. Like, what if that was the end of the story? That's a very different narrative than 81 being sort of in the middle of his narrative, right? That's, yeah. a, that's a fascinating kind of concept. And Dylan's been declared dead many times. Um, right. Literally and figuratively. So, um, right. you know, he, he, he disappeared from the, the creative scene in the 90s. I mean, he was performing. But, you know, he wasn't producing original material until, until 1997, um, you know, so for the better part of a decade, uh, nothing. And, you know, that, that's so it seems like he's never going to do it again. But he, he comes back. He does it again. Mm -hmm. so maybe that's the answer. That, that's what Coltrane would have been like. Um, although he, he just kept going strong. So I'm not really sure. <laughs> right. I mean, once you explode the sun, where more can you go? But I guarantee you there would have been something interesting or creative or fascinating. And, you know, Dylan in the 90s, he goes back to the, the folk songs, right? I mean, that's sort of what primes the pump, however you want to look at it. Uh, I know our uh, our friend and colleague Grayley kind of looks at the time out of mind coming out of that folk experience, that murder ballad world. So there is something there to that where he's like, well, what are the songs that made that made me think about this? And then he goes on to something new. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Like, like I said, there's infinite ways of looking at this, but I think it's it's an interesting conversation. Yeah, well, he always goes back to the well. I mean, you could even argue he did that when, with the three American Songbook albums. Mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. and, whether, and whether they influenced his songwriting or his performance, they definitely influenced his performance. There's no getting around that. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think that, that gets discussed enough, but absolutely, the way he performs those songs on stage. Uh, if you look at that Tony Bennett uh, song, he did that one-off uh, thing. There's a really fascinating, there's a physicality to his performances, uh, bodily, you know, corporally that I think is, is really important to understand how he views his connection to that material. Yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah. Well, Court, you have anything else you want to throw in there before we wrap up? I think you, you, you tapped me. Now I'm just excited. <laughs> let's, just, let's just go off and think about it and, and converse about it for the, the rest of our lives. Well, I appreciate your, your insights. Um, we've been talking to Court Carney, uh, really great conversation. We covered, the gamut from, uh, you know, Bob Dylan's set list all the way through to, to jazz. I wasn't expecting to talk about jazz, which is always fun to do. <laughs> <laughs> but I really appreciate your time and um, hope you are a regular contributor to the Dylan Pots. Yeah, no, this has been really great, Jim. I really appreciate getting to get to know you a little bit better uh, as much as we can through Zoom conversation. And uh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Dylan Tons Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to receive the latest Dylan Tons right to your inbox. And don't forget to share on social media.